0: I was in a place where I was kind of in no man's land, really, because all the jazz players thought I was a classical player and all the classical players thought I was a jazz player. I've always said since this point, I'm just a trumpet player. You know, it's it's whether you speak English with a. I don't know, a Scottish accent or an American accent or a, a, a southern British accent or a northern British accent. That's how you play the trumpet, isn't it? You, you change your accent to whatever the music is that you're playing.
1: This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have
0: trumpet players ever been
1: considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Mike Lovett. Mike, well, he's a master craftsman. Whether he's sitting in the back row of a big band or standing in front of an orchestra, his huge sound and flawless technique make even the most challenging parts sound effortless. Mike's desire to inspire has earned him the prestigious Derek Watkins Chair of Trumpet at the Royal Academy of Music and positions at the Royal College of Music, the Royal Conservatory of Scotland, and the Royal Welsh and Birmingham Conservatories. Plus, he's always down for a pint or two. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin! All right, and uh, here we are, another edition of the Trumpet Guru's Hang, uh, and uh, I am joined by Mr. Mike Lovett. Mike, it is a pleasure to have you on the show, my friend.
0: Oh, it's lovely to be here. Finally, we we meet again, I think it was um, 2015, back at, in Anaheim at an ITG, Correct. when we bumped into each other.
1: Right there, there were man. That that was like a heavyweight gathering. There, there were some because of you know being in LA. All of the great players from, from Los Angeles, obviously, were there, and then uh, so many other people from from uh, around the the states, and then a lot of the international people were there. And it was just that's the one thing I miss is just being being in those kind of crowds and and uh, you know being able to to meet people that typically you would never get a chance to to talk to. So
0: yeah, it was lovely. I mean, I I, I actually ended up going there because. Um, it was the launch of my, uh, own model trumpet, which is made by Smith Watkins, uh, Richard Smith and Richard said, Oh, I'm going to take it to ITG. Would you like to come along as well? So I went along and it was great for me because I didn't have to play at all. <laughs> I just went to loads of classes and ha- hanging out with lots of fantastic, like you say, fantastic trumpet players. Uh, some great here. Some some people i met before, and it was great to see them again. Spend longer time with them, but it was a yeah, it was a lovely few days for me. I I loved it, and we got to play in the. I think at that time it was the world's largest fanfare team. Yes, I was there as well. Yeah, was, yeah, in the back row, I think. Uh, <laughs> and I think it was Doc Doc Stevenson was conducting it, so. Yeah, Doc that was, was fantastic. Yeah,
1: yeah. So uh, seeing people like you and and Arturo and all these yeah. other people in the crowds, like, yeah, I got to play with Arturo and Doc Severinsen while I was in like
0: That's it. And I I happened to be at the front, and because I was actually playing a proper fanfare trumpet, so I couldn't go further back because of the length of the bell. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually had Brian McDonald sat sat behind or stood behind me which was amazing having him in my ears
1: oh that that had that had to be a very very soft and delicate playing for
0: <laughs> <laughs> Brian's Brian's and I have you know we've met quite a few times now he's a lovely guy and a what a player
1: yeah uh, Brian Brian is one of a kind um you know there, there's so many great players out there I mean and and certainly you you are in that Pantheon uh and actually that's one of the things that I, I do want to talk about is that um and there's kind of been this this legacy. I mean, when people think about lead trumpet players, they they typically think about, uh, you know, uh, the West Coast or the or the the New York, the L.A. or New sure. York kind of guys, and, and those were the big names. But uh, but to me, one of the all-time great players, um, as you were talking about, Smith Watkins, yeah, uh, Watkins. Uh, was, to me, like, it's like Gazzo and Watkins, to me, kind of had that the epitome of that big, full, in your face lead trumpet sound that was just, you know, so rich and so powerful, yet so musical. And, yeah. um, you know, there there seems to be a lot of, of players from the London area, from, from England in general, but maybe London specifically, uh, that have kind of fallen into that camp. and your playing to me is very reminiscent of Derek's in terms of having that the fullness of the sound, the beauty, the 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 shimmering wall of sound that you know can lift the music up but can also just rip your face off if needed. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but you know was was derek a uh, uh, an inspiration to you or a, a model to you in terms of your playing?
0: Very much so, Um, but it kind of goes further back than that because in the UK, we have this wonderful uh, brass band tradition, which really is at the heart of all the brass playing that takes place in the UK. I mean, if you haven't been taught by somebody who played in a brass band, maybe they were taught by somebody in a brass band and there's always been that love of, of the of the way that brass bands play, you know cornet players. So of course Derek came from a brass band background. His dad uh, ran a brass band in in uh, Reading in, in 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 the south of England, and Derek grew up playing in that band. So cornet was Derek's first instrument. And if you you know if you listen to Derek's sound, there's always a hint of that in it. There's that, like you said, there's that heartfelt, the musical sound of of the way that he plays. And when I was growing up, I didn't grow up in a a brass band, but I was turned on really by a trumpet player called Kenny Baker, who was one of Derek's predecessors, really. And actually, because I'm sat next to my records, I do have an album. This is it. It's called The Phase Four World of Kenny Baker. Now, Kenny was from the north of England where, you know, there's a lot of brass bands and there were a lot of brass bands up there that were uh, connected to collieries or or bigs or steelworks or all these companies. For their pastimes, they had um, bands, they had brass bands and it was a family tradition. And when you weren't working, you'd work for the company and then you'd go and play in the brass band twice a week or whatever. And that's how the brass band started. Kenny started in in one of those, and he had that sound as well. You know, Kenny was famous for playing in the great Ted Heath Orchestra. Um, There's also that film Genevieve. I don't know if you've ever seen that. And there's a a blonde-haired lady, and she's playing the trumpet. But actually, it's not her. It's Kenny Baker. So you would have heard. Kenny Baker, of course, was on The Muppets as well, The Muppet Show. Um, He was the guy playing the trumpet, so I was on that. But anyway, Derek was in that same line. There's Morris Murphy's another one. He was a brass band player as well. The great Morris Murphy, the principal trumpet of the LSO. And of course, everybody's heard him on all the Star Wars uh, soundtracks, amongst lots of other things. Um, Morris was an amazing cornet player. Derek's growing up through the cornet playing with his dad in the brass band and eventually picks up a trumpet and... Harry's that kind of playing through into his trumpet playing. How he came to discover that he had this incredible range, and and not just the range, but it was the control that he had playing high. Um, I was lucky enough to sit next to him back in nineteen ninety six on a James Bond movie, and at the time I was doing a TV show with him, and there was just two trumpets on the TV show, and. He just happened to say to me, you know, in passing, "Oh, um, next week we're starting to record the latest Bond movie." And so I said, "Wow, it must be amazing to do something like that." Anyway, two days later, I get a call from the from the fixer, saying, um, "Derek Watkins would like you to join him for the for the the latest Bond movie, which starts next week on Monday. Five days, every day in the studio." And I said, yeah, I can do that. So I turned up at at a studio called Air Lindhurst in in North London. And um, yeah, Tomorrow Never Dies was the film. And the first thing we did was um, I think it's a motorcycle chase with Pierce Brosnan, he was Bond at the time. And he's got a lovely Thai lady on the back of his motorbike. And they're, you know, they're being chased. It's a big chase scene, probably about eight minutes long. And that was the first thing we recorded. And in that, you know, Derek's accuracy and the power and the sound just absolutely, I was completely amazed by what he could do in that situation. And we're talking about in those days, things were recorded in a complete section. A lot, a lot of things that happen nowadays. It's done separately or you do a few bars and then you stop and you do the next bit and it's done like that. But in those days, it was the whole orchestra in the studio at the same time. And we just played. And that was really a a sort of turning point for me in, in the way that I realized what an incredible player Derek was. Having heard him as a kid, you know, when I was growing up and realizing that this, musician was just an incredible technician and had that range but above all and you mentioned this you know he still could play with with musicality in the upper register and that's what really made him you know one of the greatest trumpet players we've had and what one of the greatest studio players we've ever had but my my hero um as far as um American trumpet players are concerned growing up was um, the great Yuan Rezi. And he's somebody that um, I didn't, I'd heard him, like lots of people, you know, he played, I think Yuan Rezi played first trumpet on, in the region, about 3,800 films. And so everybody's heard him. They might not know who he is, but they've heard him. And I was always taken with his, ability to play with this complete heartfelt sound whether he was playing in the upper register or he was playing something that was quite technical or indeed when he was playing something like chinatown you know from the jerry goldsmith score from the film of the same name i think that was recorded in 73 or 74 or something like that um and I just thought, wow, the sound of this guy, that's what I want to sound like. So really in, in my playing life, I've 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 tried to, you know, we all have a sound which we want to get in our heads. We maybe never ever achieve it. I think if we do, then it's time to stop playing. Um, but we're always striving to get that sound, striving to get better. And really, it's amazing that, you know. I've got Ewan Ray in my head. I've got Conrad Gaza in my head. I've got uh, Bernie Glow in my head. I've got Derek Watkins in my head. I've got Kenny Baker, all these players that are all sort of in there. And you try and you try and draw on that and try and think, right, I want to try and play like this. And hopefully you add something of yourself to it then as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's that is the dream. That
2: is yeah. the
1: dream. so um. You know, in in that London music scene, um, yeah, obviously there there was a lot of scoring work that was going on. There still is still going on. There's still a whole lot of uh, of session work that's going on in that area. Um, the uh, was it the West End? Uh, the West End, absolutely, yeah. Lots of musicals and things like that, and and sometimes and sometimes I think that people outside of the UK don't realize uh, how thriving uh, a music scene uh that is going on uh in in the uk and in, in london specifically i mean I, I always think back to to uh to like ronnie scott's you know yeah. how, how so many great bands uh and and uh, you know big band small bands have gone through that that spot and and recorded at ronnie's that seemed to be like one of the things that you wanted to do if you're going to do a live album you want to do it at ronnie's <laughs> yeah um, so there, I mean, there there just had to be this tremendous amount of uh, it had to be like a a very fertile uh, breeding ground for musical creativity. So when when you were coming up through the ranks, and even now today, as you are uh, in the position that you're in, um, you know, what are what are some of the things that that to you stand out as being uh, representative of what London and the UK music scene is all about?
0: Okay. Um, well, like you say the the west end is is completely thriving and and when we say West End, it's like Broadway, so it's all the all the Broadway shows. And you know, I think it was probably about, well, pre-Covid, but there was probably about three or four shows that had three trumpet players in each show. So if you think about that and you think about the subs or the deputies that come in and out, there's so much going on. In that scene, and that's that's for some people that's the basis of their playing life, so they'll go off and do their gigs and they'll get a sub in you know and and um that's a re- like I say that's a real mainstay for a lot of people i mean i i've I've done something like i don't know ten or eleven shows that have actually been my own um I'm not doing one at the moment i i go and I go and sub in 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 a few different shows in the west end um and I don't think you know, for a lot of people at one time, if you did a show, then you weren't at the sort of forefront of the scene. But nowadays, if you've got a West End show, then you thought of in, you know, in the first division, you're 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 a you're a good player. And that happened. Actually, going back to Derek again, that happened only, you know, probably 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when people like Derek started to have West End shows and play in West End shows. And they found that they could add that to their other music making, either their gigs or the studio sessions as well. Um, I was talking to somebody um, from the States, actually. uh, This is only about six months ago. And they said that they wanted to come to London to record something. But actually they couldn't because they couldn't get into a studio. All the studios were busy. Now, in okay, there are less studios in London now than there used to be, but we've still got obviously Abbey Road, which is the kind of flagship studio, and there's three three main studios there and smaller studios as well. And they're normally pretty busy. So the studio one, you've got the you've got the um, you know, the main orchestral, maybe film sessions or classical orchestras go in there. And you've got studio two, which of course is famous for the Beatles but actually it's famous for lots of other things as well um and that's more of a kind of um uh, if you put in a light orchestral thing on or a big band you'd probably record in there you wouldn't want to record in studio one so anyway Abbey Road is is really busy um we've got Angel Studios which closed for a while and then reopened and in fact Abbey Road um purchased that studio to save it from been made into a block of flats or something like that um and then you've got uh air studios which is in north london which is an old church and that's got two big rooms that you can put on orchestra in both of those um and so yeah that scene is really thriving a lot of the a lot of movies come from from uh made in hollywood come to london to record um, and you know, for whatever reason uh, that is, you know, maybe it's a cost thing, or especially with you know maybe the pound and the dollar, and maybe it's more cost effective to come to the UK. Um, but the scene is really, like you say, it's 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 thriving. There's a lot of young players that have come up, especially post COVID. Um, the orchestras are are thriving in in a way, as far as brass players are concerned, most of the principal trumpets, like the principal trumpet of the London Symphony Orchestra, James Fountain, I don't think he's 30 yet. Um, And His predecessor, Phil Cobb, I think he was 22 when he got the principal trumpet job of the London Symphony Orchestra. Um, He's now with the BBC Symphony Orchestra. Um, All these orchestras, like I say, have got all young players in the big bands, there's a big band scene. There's the Ronnie Scott's big band, which is run by a guy called Pete Long. So that's a regular occurrence at Ronnie Scott's. Last week, I think there was the Buddy Rich band, Kathy Rich and Greg Potter came over and, and they got a uh, I think they they brought over um uh oh Tony Caruso. Tony Grusso came over to play lead trumpet, but also there was a couple of other Ex Woody Herman bands, a guy called Jay Craig, who's a baritone sax player, who was a college lad, studied in America and then went on tour with Buddy Rich. So um, he's an alumni of the Buddy Rich band. So that's been taking place all last week at Ronnie Scott's. And then I just noticed that, you know, they finished on Saturday night. On Sunday, there was another big band in there. And I think starting last night for three nights, there's another big band. So it gives you an idea of really what's going on. And I've always been somebody that's gone like this between all of these things. Um, my, my career began really, my, my life began as a, as, a, as a classical trumpet player because I, I studied classically. Um, and the first professional work I did was with uh, the BBC Symphony Orchestra whilst I was still at college. Um, So I was 19 at the time, um, and that was an amazing experience. And I thought that's where my career was going to go. But I always loved the big band and jazz scene. And so um, I was always striving. I thought, I want to be a lead trumpet player in a big band. Um, But at the time, you know, at that particular moment, I'd... When I was 14, I had a a cycling accident, which meant that my top lip was lacerated and actually a lot of it was cut off my face. Um, They managed to sort it out with a plastic surgeon stitching it back and I lost three teeth in the bottom and one in the top. Um, So I thought my trumpet days, playing days were over then. Um, But anyway, I managed to make a comeback and audition to get to college. And at that particular time, my, my chops weren't in great shape. I could, you know, range wise, I could play up to an ordinary high C, um, but that was it. And so I, I suppose my classical playing, I thought, well, I can probably do manage to be a classical trumpet player and only play up to an ordinary high C, um, during the college time, I I I tried all sorts of things to try and get my chops together, but uh, nothing happened. It was going to be later when us managed to sort that out.
1: and that's uh, that's quite a career. Sh- well, I don't want to say it's a career shift, but a, a life shift, uh, especially having to deal with that that kind of an injury, and um, you know, basically, I guess in many ways start start from scratch and. Um, it's unfortunate because there's so many people that that do have those kind of situations occur in their lives. Um, but for whatever reason, they can't seem to get past it. So yeah. um, you know the ability to to take that adversity and then uh, you know, to 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 maintain and and to go through through the processes, the the physical, the mental, and emotional healing that has to take place in order to continue because it's just so easy to say, Oh, this you know, I'm done, and, and walk yeah. away.
0: Yeah, I definitely was somebody who really tried hard. i mean I, I grew up in a in a musical family. Uh, my dad was um head of music at a at a school, and um, when his music teaching career began, there were no peripatetic teachers that came into the school to teach instruments. And my dad was really kind of hell bent on, on getting a school orchestra together. And so he decided to buy up lots of different instruments. So as a kid growing up in our house, there was, you know, there was a flute, there was a clarinet, there was a trumpet, there was a trombone, there was a French horn, there was a violin, there was a chap, there was all these instruments. Plus we had a, obviously we had a piano. And at that time they were quite popular to have in your homes were electronic organs before so kind of keyboards came in. So I remember we had a Yamaha, you know, of course the, the thing of the day really was the, was the kind of, um, originally came from the old Wurlitzers. Um, but then there was the Hammonds, of course, and the drawbars. And we had, a, we had a Yamaha at the time. So all these instruments were around the house. But the reason they were there, like I say, was because my dad bought them so he could learn to play each and every one of them. Um, and so he could teach the children. And therefore, then he would be able to get the makings of the start of an orchestra. And so that was going on around me as I was growing up. And eventually, um, by the age of kind of eight or nine, I thought I fancied myself as a as a trombone player. I'll always like, I still like, I still love the trombone. If there any trombone players watching this? Um, I love the trombone anyway. Um I, I don't play it and I've tried to play it and, and it's I, I'm hopeless on it. Even with my chops are hopeless on it. I don't the mouthpiece is far too big. Um but anyway, um I went shopping with my mum and we walked into this uh, kind of supermarket, the first one that had opened in the town we lived in. We'd never seen a supermarket before. And by, by the entrance was this carousel and it had albums on it, you know, it had vinyl. And it just so happened that in the front of one of the sections of this, these records um, was a guy, there was a picture with a guy with a trumpet and he was pointing the trumpet in the air and all these lights, studio lights was kind of shining on the bell and sparking off. And it was a guy by the name of Eddie Calvert. And he was called the man with the golden trumpet. And of course, I eventually found out that this guy was kind of a a household name, almost. He was a recording artist, British recording artist, and he just played tunes on the trumpet. But people loved him, you know, and this is why this album was there. They were all recorded at Abbey Road Studios. And um, it, it it was just, I said to my mom, can I have that record, please? And so she's, she said, yes, I'll... I'll. I'll you've been a good boy, so I'll buy you the record. So she bought me this record like, for, instead of having my pocket money. And the record was 99 pence. I don't know, you know, it's like 99 cents or something probably for um, tra- roughly translated. Um, and I, I got this record and we got home and we had this big stereogram, you know, like a sideboard. It was like a piece of furniture, but you opened up the lid and inside was the turntable. It was stereo. It had two speakers built into this cabinet. And I put this record on and, you know, you and it stayed at the top and you put this arm across and then eventually the record would drop onto the turntable and the arm, the the um, the actual arm with the needle on would go onto the record and drop down, start playing. And I'll never forget, the first tune was... Um, cherry pink and apple blossom white. And I was just hooked. That was it. For me, that was it trumpet 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 trumpet. And so I ran to get the trumpet, which my dad had in our store cupboard at home. And I remember it because it was had one of those kind of, it was an old Selma, but it was like a student model Selma. And it had one of those cardboard cases. And I remember there was like a hole in it. And you could always put your finger through this hole into the case you remember those cases no you're no. too young <laughs> no, I, 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 I i'm i'm not as young as i look so. <laughs> and so i i remember just opening this case and i could you know when you go somewhere and sometimes you have a flashback of memory because of a smell mm-hmm. well there was a smell of that case and occasionally maybe if somebody's kept their instrument in a case for a long time or you yeah you open an old trumpet case this smell comes and it takes me back to that moment but i got this trumpet out and whatever mouthpiece was in, i think it was a rudy muck 17c or something i've got it in there in my store cupboard um but anyway i put the mouthpiece in and i'm there i'm just trying to play along to this record now i didn't know what valves to press down nobody showed me oh yeah you know you've buzz your lips or make a raspberry or whatever, you know, it was just, I'm having a go. And that happened for kind of weeks on end, really. (laughs) And, and, and eventually, you know, my dad, when he had some time, he he sort of showed me the basics of, you know, this is C, this is G, and then, you know, some valves and, and that's how I got going. Uh, And then eventually, um, I did actually take some lessons with a with a peripatetic teacher um, who who came to, eventually came to our school by the name of Ron Farger, who's still with us um and um, he was a fantastic trumpet player, classical trumpet player played C trumpet most of the time actually um, but uh, yeah that was the that was the beginnings of my my life as a as a player um and but what I discovered pretty soon on was probably when I was about 11 or 12 was that I could play a high G you know I didn't really know that that was necessarily high on the trumpet so and and I kind of just discovered that I could do it I mean I I I, I think you've interviewed Louis Dowdswell on 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 this show and you know I I was I was lucky enough to to um to to give Louis some lessons especially when when he was about fourteen, I remember him coming to my house, and 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 he had his mum with him. And his mum said, "Oh, you know, my son can play high on the trumpet. See what you think." So of course, you know, the rest is history, kind of thing. But um, Louis, okay, he's worked on it. He knows he knows what he's doing. But I think initially he he kind of discovered that he could do this thing. He could play high, and and I was like that. So when I got to 14 and I was running home from school, either to practice the trumpet or ride my my racing bike, and I'm talking about a pedal bike now, um, on this particular evening, I decided to go out on my bike rather than play the trumpet. They were my two loves. And um, sadly, I got to a a T-junction at a, a narrow country lane, big hedges either side. I was going to turn right. So opposite side of the road so coming from my left i could see a car coming but coming from my right um i didn't realize there was another car now in order for them not to have a head-on collision the car coming from my right decided to swerve into me and that's that's basically how it happened um and at that particular time as soon as they'd you know stitch the lip back um, I didn't have any teeth in the bottom, but I, I started to try and play straight away after that. So I, I, I was really determined to do this thing. But I just remember for a while in my dad's youth orchestra, I changed the percussion and I played timps and crashed some cymbals. I just wanted to make a noise. <laughs> but um, it was it was something that really made me want to be a trumpet player more than anything else in the world. So I've been really lucky, but I tried very hard. But like I say, yeah, I've been been lucky. I've been in, if a a situation's come along, if an opportunity has arisen for me, I've gone, yes, I'll do that. Sometimes absolutely terrified that when I've said yes, I'll do something that I might not be able to do it. But um, touch wood, um I haven't been found out yet
2: <laughs> well
1: that that's a good thing you know
0: yeah uh, i mean yeah, it it sounds
1: like um you know you, i hate to use a word like that, that you're destined to to for yeah. great. but you know it, it's to me it's it's an interesting thing because a lot of people uh they they put a little bit too much stock in the fact that people are naturals like you were saying well you figured out a way to play a high g when you were young like louie figured out how to play highly junk there's so many people that that have these kind of breakthroughs or early breakthroughs in their in their playing or whatever it is they do they don't know how they do it they, they just figure they just it just happens for them um but a lot of people say well the reason that I'm not going to pursue a musical career it's because I'm not a natural. I can't play. I naturally can't play high like this guy, or I can't play fast, or I don't have perfect pitch. And they're looking at all of all of these things and not looking at the fact that for everybody that has those kind of uh, opportunities and the the uh, the setups that that you had, there's still a work that goes on behind the scene. Yeah, you know, yeah. Sure. You, you can you can have you know, you can have all of the the right things. You can have access to the teachers, you can have access to the equipment, you can have some natural proclivities. But if you don't uh, do the work, and if you don't, and if you're not passionate about it, because eventually we all come to a point that we run into a difficulty, and that difficulty is what's going to define us as not only a player, but as a person. And so, you know, I, I know that for you, you I mean, you obviously have personally gone through that, but also, you know, you've been an educator for such a, a long time that I'm sure that, that this is something that you have come across in, in your roles as a, a private teacher, as well as uh, teaching uh, at so many prestigious uh, uh, schools of music there in the UK. Um, I mean, how do you help students to understand that yeah, you know, your talent, your your natural talent, is only going to get you so far. That but that, that if you really want to uh, be the best version of yourself, that it is going to require something beyond your innate talent.
0: Yeah, I, I try and encourage people obviously to to put some time in and and to actually um not not think too much about what it is that you're doing, but kind of do it. My my approach has always been that really, that um you do, you play the trumpet. It's something that you do. Okay. When we practice, we sometimes have to think about exactly what it is that we're doing regards our technique and trying to instill this way of practicing like that and concentrating, especially with young players nowadays, it's very difficult to get people to concentrate for any length of time. So I always encourage people to practice lots of times in a day, but for only short bursts, maybe 20 minutes to half an hour, rather than practicing for, you know, an hour, an hour and a half, because actually. If I try and practice for an hour, an hour and a half, playing the trumpet solidly, well, I find that really hard. And it's a way of building up the stamina and building up the kind of the the response that you'll get as well. Doing practicing like that is that maybe when you finish those twenty minutes, your chops are still in quite good shape. So when you come back to it again, you're starting from a good place, not from practicing for two hours, and then going, Oh, God, my shots are really tired now. And maybe the practice has gone off because the concentration's gone. So at the end of it, you go and do something else. And then you come back a bit later. And you're starting from where you left off, you need to be able to start from a good place. And, and that psychological aspect of getting people going and realising that if they want it, yeah, the talent isn't just going to do it, you've got to put this kind of concentrated, short, lots of practicing where you really concentrate on it. And the next thing I'd say is, and I try and encourage students to do this, is to listen, 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 and listen to as many different, okay, many different types of music as possible, not just the trumpet, and then listen to lots of trumpet as well. But you know, and 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 the when the words of Duke Ellington, there are only two types of music, good and bad. And, I, and I'll leave everybody to decide which is good and which is bad.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, but, that's a loaded, that's a loaded statement
0: there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, apparently he did say that, but it, it's it's when people occasionally you get somebody who's like a sponge, and they'll just soak it up. And they're the ones that you might say, oh, they're naturally talented. But in a lot of ways, I don't think. There is anything such as a natural talent. I think it's, it decide, it's, it's kind of decided on. Where you start off in your life and where you, you know, you, like I was lucky. I was surrounded by music from, from day one. Um, There's a a really good book, actually. It's called Bounce. And it's about, I don't know if you know that, it's about a a table tennis player. And the fact that he became a world champion table tennis player, not because he was talented, but because he just happened to live around the corner from a fantastic uh, table tennis coach. So he used to just walk around to this guy's house and he was shown all this stuff at an early age. And then, of course, later on, people say, oh, he's a really talented player. Well, it was born out of this growing up with this thing happening right next to where he lived. So, you know, maybe there is something in that, in how some people grow up. And I know there's quite a few people that I've taught that have been shall we say in in quite privileged backgrounds, I'm talking about in music education. So they started music education when they were very young. And so by the time they get to, I don't know, they're all Academy of Music, or you know, they're at a a, a serious uh, College of Music conservatoire or whatever, that they're already well on the way with what you might think is, wow, they're really talented. Um, But actually, I think it's something that's just grown with them. And then you've got to encourage them not to be blase about that, the fact that they might be ahead of somebody contemporary to them that hasn't had that kind of background. But actually, what can happen is they're up here and they're down there. And actually, sometimes it can do that a bit, especially if they don't apply themselves and practice and you know shed stuff and listen to advice the, the other problem we've got of course is these days is the internet which is wonderful uh, otherwise we wouldn't be here um okay. today but um you know the, the mobile phones are smartphones are fantastic you can listen to anything but it's encouraging people to be inquiring about this you know when I was younger, I had to go to a music shop or a record shop and, and try and try and find out about stuff because it wasn't presented to me. You know, occasionally I'd hear stuff on the radio and I'd say, all right, I wanna go and get that album or I wanna go and get that piece of music and try and play that. Um, it wasn't there for us. And, and I think nowadays, because it is, it can be um, a bad thing. Not always, but it can be,
1: yeah well i I agree with you hundred percent on that, uh, and i I can't remember who it was I on the show that I was having that conversation with um about the difference between people of our generation uh having to go to the record store and and uh and find the record, and you know, I used to love getting the record, and you know it's it's like you're talking about memories and you know having. Opening it up, you know, opening the plastic and feeling it and reading the notes and and the uh, the sound of it as it as it hits the turntable. I could, as soon as you were talking about that, I re, I can remember those those things right away. But yeah. you 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 had to be very uh, very uh, directed and focused on doing those kind of things uh, as opposed to now. Uh, for like you said, for better or for worse, the great thing is that there's so much information out there. If you want you can listen to anything right now, and you can go into any streaming service and listen to things and they'll they'll curate the list. They'll say, Oh, if you like this, then you should listen to this, which can be good sometimes because it does introduce you to someone or something that you you maybe wouldn't have found on your own. But I think sometimes what it does is discourages um that investigative nature that everybody that I know that's great at what they do has this kind of passion to dig under the surface of things and to, to research deeply. Um, so, you know, I just, I remember, you know, as, as a kid, uh, you know, the first time I, I heard Maynard Ferguson and it's like, oh, okay. And my mind was completely blown. Then it's like, I had to find everything that he did. And then that led to oh well he played with Stan Kenton okay well then I started to listen to everything Stan Kenton did and it's like oh well I really like this player and that turned me onto like all these different kind of uh, threads that existed but it was it wasn't that I was being force fed that information it was that I was intentionally going out and seeking the information and and trying to find out as much as possible about it so uh, I think that's where the that's the 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 yin and yang of 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 this current digital age is that it's so easy, but sometimes easy makes it uh, the accessibility of it makes it that where our passion gets lost in the process.
0: I think I think that's very true. I remember actually only a few years back I was doing a trumpet class at, at the Royal College of Music, and I had fifteen trumpet players sat in a semicircle, and. They, I said, you know, questions, anybody got any questions? And somebody said, you know, how do you play in, in this style? Um, and I said, well, how do you play in this style? I said, all I did was listen to the music, to the original recordings. And they they were asking about playing in an orchestra, but playing like the the MGM style, like I was talking about you and Raisi. So playing like he would do with the MGM Studio Symphony so I told them about that. I said, you know, this is one of the greatest orchestras that's ever been, but I, I believe that. Um, and, and, and I listened to those recordings over and over again. I would play along with them and listen to them and try and get a, a concept of whether I was actually sounding like that or not. And after that, I said, so who's listened to something today? So there's 15 of them, and they just sat there completely silent. And I said, okay, what about yesterday? Nothing. Now, bearing in mind, these 15 students are at a top prestigious music conservatoire. Um, They should be listening to stuff when they're not playing. They should be listening all the time, I think. Um, And eventually somebody said that, they'd listened to something like four days ago and they said it was Bruno Mars. And I said, well, there's nothing wrong with Bruno Mars. That's fine. It's all all got its place. And then somebody said, oh, yeah. And I did listen to a Brahms symphony. And I said, well, uh, what orchestra was it? Oh, I I don't know. Um, What conductor was it? Oh, I don't know. So you don't know the conductor. You don't know the orchestra. Therefore, you don't know who the trumpet player was that was playing in that orchestra, the principal trumpet. Well no. I said, Well, maybe next time you listen to something, try and find all those things out and then find out something. It's like you're saying it's about the line, like folks into Kenton and and how it goes on like that. Once you know who the principal chunk was, well, listen to other things that he's done or she's done. And then that might link to another orchestra and you you listen to them or might listen to might link you to another band or some other type of music. And I think that's really important, again, when when I'm encouraging people to listen, is to try and, for them to make those connections with 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 the music. And then, you know, it'd it be so much more informative to them, to their ear and, and will help them get their sound to where they want it to be. And their playing to where they want it to sound, what they want it to sound like.
1: Mm. Now, that's that's golden information right there. Um, so uh, uh, right now, um, like in terms of of where you are in your career arc, um, what are the things that that are are your biggest passions?
0: Okay. Well, um, in two thousand and nine, which I know was quite a long time ago, um, I played in a concert. Um, which was part of the BBC Promenade season. And it was with an orchestra called the John Wilson Orchestra. I don't know whether you're aware of the the work that we've done with that. Um, And it was an orchestra which was primarily got together to to reconstruct those old MGM film scores. So on one page, you'd be playing lead trumpet. You turn over the page, you're playing orchestral trumpet. And that's kind of what it was all about. So... This orchestra that I was in, John Wilson Orchestra, probably was formed about 15 years before that, so it'd been going for quite a long time. John formed it when he was at, at a music school himself, and from there built it up into this amazing orchestra, and the BBC all of a sudden gave this orchestra a place on the proms, and it was live on BBC television and from that moment onwards, that kind of helped to elevate where I was in my career up to an, another level in some ways uh, because I was seen on all these YouTube clips all over the world and people all of a sudden would go, oh, who's this guy playing on here? And so it was, it was good for me. But um, why am I telling you this? That orchestra went on... Until two thousand and nineteen, so ten years playing at the BBC proms. and during that time, we did lots of work with um different stars, uh singing stars, one of which was um Seth MacFarlane. And Seth MacFarlane is I don't know whether you 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 know that his kind of talent is so over everything, really. He's an actor, he's a he's a He's a, a, a great musician, he's a great singer, he's a writer, he's a comedian, he's an impressionist. He, he does all of these things. And he's you know he's a good piano player, amazing piano player. Um, and he kind of picked up on certain players from within that orchestra, myself being one of them. And in the years that have gone on since we first met playing in that orchestra, He's kind of come over here to record with some of the players from that orchestra because of the of the style that we play in. You know, Seth loves the the the, the, the style from you know the Nelson Riddle era. So you know, Capitol Records in the nineteen fifties and early sixties. Uh, that's his kind of soundscape that he's trying to get into, and he wants to have that around him. And so I got asked to do that work with him and 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 that's kind of been part of the pinnacle really of of well hopefully there will be other things but um it, it's been one of the, the the highlights of my career to 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 work that closely with him um and and even up to uh when was it um oh, new year's eve which is gone a month ago um I went over to San Francisco. He got me over there to go and play with the San Francisco Symphony. But I was part of the kind of big band that played with them. Um, so it was like Dan Higgins was playing saxophone, Peter Erskine was on drums, and it was a great, great Alex Isles on lead trombone, and I was there to play lead trumpet. And then um after the gig, we flew in a private plane down to Los Angeles and we're, you know, it's things like that that I sort of pinch myself and go, wow, this is amazing that I'm in this part of my career now doing. I'm doing more of the things that I love now than I have ever done before in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, I'm involved with a guy called Andrew Cotti, who he's been a writer for some of the Orville series, which is Seth MacFarlane's uh, sci-fi uh, series, which I'm sure you've seen, it's on maybe on Fox TV or something like that. Um, and Andrew is an incredible writer. He's from the UK. He he used to um, do quite a few of the transcriptions for the John Wilson Orchestra. So you know, taking down some of those massive scores from the MGM library, because what happened with all those was, of course, that um, MGM in their wisdom they decided that once something had been recorded that it wouldn't really be needed again because why would it be it's down on you know it's down on films down on tape so when a, some stuff was needed for landfill for a new golf course a lot of the scores got thrown in there so when john started that whole show, he had to he had to transcribe a lot of them and you can imagine how painstaking that was um, and Andrew did the same, but anyway, An- Andrew's now uh, also, like I said, he's writing his own original music for for Seventh and, and for that series. He's writing stuff for uh, other films, and he's in the studio quite a bit. And so I'm working closely with him as his um, lead trumpet as well. And that's the style of that is can be can be quite orchestral, uh, but occasionally. Big band, and that's we did a another album with, with Seth MacFarlane, which came out last year called Blue Skies. And it's all Andrew's writing on that. Um, and that was recorded in London with some of those people um, that I mentioned uh, Peter Erskine, um, Dan Higgins, a, a guy called Tom Ranier on piano, he's an amazing piano player, um, a guy called Larry Coons on guitar. These old guys are all from LA and the great Chuck Burgoffer on bass, who of course was Sonata's last bass player. Um, and there was a bit of a coincidence there because, um, he's actually married to an English girl and they met, um, on the last European tour that Sonata did, and she's a harpist and she happened to be booked in London to play harp. She met Chuck and they fell in love and they got married and she moved to LA. But the the other, it, what, where it doesn't stop there is is the fact that Julie, his wife, went to school in Manchester with my wife. So the, we, we, we met and there was this connection. And like I said, when we were in LA um, at New Year, we had a wonderful um day and evening with with julian chuck but chuck's an incredible bass player um he's he's a a legendary double bass player i don't know whether you you remember um nancy the nancy Sonata that these boots are made for walking yes that's chuck that's chuck it goes that's that's chuck (laughs) i mean that's just one of the things he's done
1: Well, yeah, you 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 can't be a slouch and play with Sinatra. That that no rel- none Absolutely of that. Absolutely
0: not. But those those are just some of the you know where I am now. Like I said, I'm I'm doing things that 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 I really love doing and and quality stuff. Maybe not quite as busy as I was, but I think that's more to do with. Like you say, you you described it as an arc, and I think that's a very good way of describing your career because you go up and up and up, and then it does start to tail off, you know. People get older. Some people, you know, and then like I said, we've got all these fabulous players coming up that I mean, I've taught a lot of them, so it's my fault. But well, it's not actually, it's just them. They just they just like I say, some people are sponges and they just go and they just go with it and they do their own thing you know people like tom walsh and um have you heard james Copas as well another fantastic jazz trumpet player who i was fortunate to teach and um and louie i've already mentioned there's quite a few on the on the scene here that are, that are, that, are, that are you know they're moving in and that's that's fine that's how it was when i was young i moved in and maybe some of the older people went off i'm not done yet by the way but but oh, no. um, <laughs>
1: Well, it, it, it what it does is it affords you the opportunity to be more uh, judicious about the projects you do get involved in
0: exactly yeah and and um saying that, um when it was towards the end of the final lockdown, um, I decided that because I'd been getting my home record like we all did getting my home recording chops together, um I decided that. I wanted to try and get my own group together. Now, I thought, no, it's not gonna be another big band. There are so many big bands out there. I know what I'll do, I'm gonna do a brass group. Now for several years, I've had transcribed, about 10 years ago, I've had the complete music from Billy May's Big Fat Brass. And they were transcribed by Andrew Cotti, who I just, I just mentioned. And they're fantastic transcriptions, and I, and I've taken them to most of the conservatoires and done them with students. Of course, they they've never heard this music; they didn't know it existed. And now, what the great thing about that is, they all love Billy May now. So, you know, it's kind of it's keeping his his thing going as well, which is brilliant, as it should be done. Um, and so, this kind of, as always, at the back of my mind, I thought wouldn't it be great to get like a, a team of all my favorite brass players in London and, 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 and get a group out there on the road Of course, it was locked down. So I couldn't do that. So the next best thing was to do a recording. Now I've got a, a, a fantastic friend and colleague, one of my oldest friends, who's a, a saxophone player, but he actually started off as a classical bassoon player. So he's a, he's a multi, woodwind player really but he's a great writer and he's done a lot of arrangements for big band for orchestras composed stuff he composed a load of stuff for me as well which is amazing he's just a brilliant arranger and i said to him how about writing some new arrangements for the same lineup as the billy mays big fat brass and he just came out he said okay i've got this great idea he said Let's do a suite from Carmen. I said, "You mean, like the opera Carmen?" He said, "Yeah, let's do it." So the next thing, he did this arrangement, which kind of it's a bit like you know that album Share a Jazz with with, uh, and it's it's Share a but it starts off and it's Skip Martin, and it starts off and it goes dee da dee 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 Da, 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 and it goes into swing. But up to that point, you think it's just a normal recording of, of, of Um Anyway, Colin decided to do this common and suite and he, and he arranged it like this. So it starts off quite classically. And that is actually um, on YouTube. Um, we put this video together. It's a 25-piece brass group so we've got like six trumpets, four trombones, two tubers, harp, four French horns, um, piano, bass, drums, guitar, and an array of tuned percussion. So you, you can imagine it's the same, like I say, it's the same lineup that Billy may use for big fat brass. And so we recorded this thing and it's had loads of fantastic kind of re- response from people and, and people are going, Oh, you've got to take this out on the road. And I said, "Well." Yeah, I want to take it out on the road, but, you know, it's kind of money, really. Anyway, the good news is, and this is a first because nobody knows this yet, but Mm -hmm. I will reveal it here, that we now have our very first gig, which is going to be in the UK. So anybody in the States, you're going to travel over for this. No, It's going to be at Snake Maltings on the 11th of August this year. And it's our very first gig. um, And we'll be playing all new arrangements of music associated with Frank Sinatra. Um, That's what they want us to do. And so we'll be performing live for the first time, which is, um, you know, you're talking about the things we want to do and things we're excited about. This is now my, my big baby that's going to hopefully get out there and this is going to start us off but by the same token if there's anybody out there that you know would like to invest you know what they say about being a musician how do you become a millionaire you start off with 20 million (laughs) (laughs) but um yeah any if there's anybody out there that, that would like to have a listen and and anybody that's interested in China, you know, We might even start some crowdfunding to do, to do a recording because I'd like to get this group down in, in, into, into the studio and, and, and record something. Um, got lots of ideas for different programs. So I'm, as you can tell, I'm very excited about it. It's called Mike Lovett's Brass Pack. And the reason for the name The Brass Pack is that Lovett, my surname, in Old French is Louva, and that means um, that means little wolf in Old French. So uh, that's hence the brass pack. And obviously there's there's a connotation to the kind of music which we might be doing, but most of the music is going to be all new arrangements. And wherever we'll be able to slot in some of that original Billy May stuff, like in the Sonata program, there will be a couple of those thrown in because you can't kind of do that without giving a nod to Billy May.
1: Right, exactly. Well, that's exciting. That's very exciting. So uh, I'll make sure that I get uh, my plane ticket uh, yeah. at, in, uh, as long as I can get a backstage
0: pass. Um, yeah, that's it, absolutely. Yeah. Bring right. well, your trumpet as well.
1: Well, Mike, you, you you mentioned earlier, and I do want to kind of circle back to this, you mentioned, uh, you know, how you went through your accident. You you lost your upper register, uh, and then you said you, you find a, you, you kind of figured it out uh, yeah. after that. So, what what happened? how How did you how did you make that breakthrough?
0: Well, I remember it was kind of in the late eighties. Um, I left a uh, music conservatoire in 1986. And, you know, at that point, I was, like I said, I was working with, in classical music, classical orchestras, um, but there was this burning desire that I wanted to, my chops to get to where a place I'd be able to play lead trumpet. That was my, that was my goal. That's where I wanted to get. So I, you know, I've got all the books, you know, the Caruso, the stamp, um, you know, obviously normal things like, you know, um, Lord Gordon, all these different books. And I was trying to get my plane to, you know, I wanted to sound like a lead trumpet player and I, you know, I played on a big, you know, bark one mouthpiece, and I had a, a bark trumpet, which was lovely trumpet, but I thought, right, I know the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to change mouthpieces. And, of course, when I did this, it changed everything else. So all the classical work I was doing at the time kind of died off. It just got less and less because I think people got news of the fact that I was trying to become a a jazz trumpet player or a commercial trumpet player for for want of a better word. But um, I was in a place where I was kind of in no man's land, really, because all the jazz players thought I was a classical player and all the classical players thought I was a jazz player. I've always said since this point, I'm just a trumpet player. You know, it's, it's whether you speak English with a, I don't know, a Scottish accent or a... An American accent, or a, a, a Southern British accent, or a Northern British accent—that's how you play the trumpet, isn't it? You you change your accent to whatever the music is that you're playing. And so, being in this place, I got pretty disillusioned with 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 it. I'm like, I'm, I'm and you'd already t- talked about this that that's one side that comes in your head. You kind of go, oh, okay, that's it. So I. I thought about it for a bit and I thought, well, I'll carry on trying, but I think what I'll do is I'll do a full-time teacher training course so I can become a classroom teacher. And at this point, a guy who'd run the big band, we did have a big band at our college. Um, the guy that ran the big band was a guy called Bobby Lamb. Bobby Lamb had been a trombone player in Woody one of Woody Herman's bands. I can't remember which one it was, might have been in the 60s. Um, anyway Bobby had since moved back to the UK and he was very much in the forefront of the session scene on trombone with Don Lush and people like that and he got wind of the fact that I was thinking of you know not knocking the trumpet on the head but maybe not trying to strive to become a professional player lead trumpet player and so he phoned me up and he said Mike, you know, you've been, you've tried ever so hard so far. And he said, and if you're thinking of that that's it and you're not going to do it, he said, let's meet up. And he said, and I'm going to punch you in the mouth so you'll never play the trumpet again. And, and I was like, at this point, I was kind of shocked that this is what he said. He said, you don't know what's around the corner. And at this point, I said, why, why are you saying that? He said, I'm trying to make you realize what it would be like if you didn't try and you didn't make it. He said, and if I punched you in the mouth, you wouldn't be able to play. And what would it be like then? And and that was his way of, of shaking me up, really, rather than physically shaking me up. So about three weeks later, the phone goes, and no mobile phones in those days. And luckily I was in, I picked the phone up. and it was a guy who said um hi my name's Raymond Bay I'm forming a a big band and it's going to be called the Glen Miller Orchestra UK he said we've got the license to use the name from uh, the Glenn Miller estate in New York and we're forming a new band and we'd like you to play second trumpet and play all the trumpet solos and so this was 1988 so I, um, I said, oh, I'd love, I'd love to do it. I'd love to do it. So I, there I started with this band. And, you know, in those days, they were probably straight away doing about 22, 23 dates a month. So it was, there was a lot of dates going on. They had a coach. Didn't have to, I didn't have a car, so you know, a coach would try to get taken to gigs, one-night stands all over the place. And I was in that band for a total of seven, seven years. I joined the vocal group, so I went down the front and sang the close harmony group, so don't, don't Sit Under the Apple Tree and Chattanooga Choo Choo and all these Glen Miller tunes. And in the band at that time, there was a guy who said to me, he said, I know you've been striving right, to try and get your chops sorted out. He said, I've got this book, he said, you can't buy it. He said, but I've got this book and I've copied it for you. There you go. And he gave me this book. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, what's this? It's like a load of arpeggios. Okay, so I went back to my rented house that I, I was sharing with some people who were still at the college. And in my bedroom that I had, there was a big mirror on the wall. And I used to sit on the edge of the bed looking at the mirror, practicing to look at my chops and check everything was going. So I did this. I did this book. I didn't know what it was about, what you had to do with it really. I just just played what was written in the book and I did it every single day. And after about two and a half months of doing it every single day, religiously, about 20 minutes a day I did on it. Sometimes did it twice in the day. I played this arpeggio and I sailed up to a top G. and And I remember, Distinctly, because I always say this was my eureka moment, and I literally threw myself back onto my bed with my trumpet in my hands, and I kicked my legs in the air, and I went, "Yes, that's it, that's it." Of course, it wasn't it. We keep here we are today, and I'm still trying to improve that. But you're probably going to say, "Well, what was that book?" It was the Louis Maggio method, which, of course, is the Carlton Macbeth kind of it's his it's his uh, version of it mm-hmm. and then of course I uh, later on I discovered that Louis Maggio had actually suffered a similar fate to me except there wasn't a cars involved um I think it was in the 1920s or something when he slipped on some ice running for a streetcar or something and 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 smashed his smashed his lips up and he played in the Saint Louis Symphony or something like this and and they said he, he would never come back. And he used his own ideas on this system of, you know, the airspeed with the tongue position and, and, and all the rest of it. And, and that's how he came back as well. So I owe a hell of a lot to Louis Maggio. And then, of course, I then found out that not only was he a great player, but he taught all the – or he helped all the great players. He helped Gozo. He helped you and Raisi, he helped all, all all my favorite American lead trumpet players he'd had a hand in in helping them get to where they they got to so that was from that moment onwards that was my Bible really that was my that was my go- to thing and and it still is um i I've changed the way you know in in subsequent years i I got the full book which had all the notes at the beginning and In my copy, there's uh, there's some bits I've scribbled out because when I'm teaching, I try to make sure that people don't do certain things that it says in the book that I might think actually that's not what I would do. And from that, I've I've developed my own own thing, which is basically I've got a whole system which or a whole kind of routine, which is like a pre-magio routine, which I do with all my students even if they've got good chops because the what i really like about the Maggio, is it it, it's not just about range it's it's about making a really good centered sound and it's about the sound and and everything is sound you know think that's the most important thing yeah we all strive to play that elusive super c but or you know double high c but when 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 we when we get it we, we can be excited about it but actually let's get a good sound on the instrument and and like we were saying earlier about the internet and 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 youtube and all these fantastic things that we can listen to and see on there but there's some things that you see on there which you just cringe don't you with actually What's this person doing? Because they might be trying to squeak out. I'm not going to mention any names, but they might be trying to squeak out some high notes, which they do pretty unsuccessfully. And then they play something in the middle register and it's awful. So it's always been for me, again, with the Maggio, is is, is been about keeping that sound over the entire register of the instrument, really, um, and and it's so important. And I. I you know, I teach, like I say, I teach Maggio a lot, so I'm I'm playing it a lot, um, but I use it for myself as well. And actually, recently, um, I've I've been revisiting Stamp, and that was because when I spent a few days in Los Angeles last month, um, I, I had an afternoon with Malcolm McNabb, and of course, he's a big Stamp guy, and so we chatted about all sorts of things actually we had we had about 5 hours hanging around at his studio um, with a nice bottle of whiskey it was fantastic what a great guy
1: now, Mal malcolm uh, you, know, you talk about a sound man malcolm yeah. uh amazing amazing
2: absolutely great player
1: well you know the idea with, with um, you know going with maggio um, yeah, uh, there's there's certainly more more than one way to skin a cat, as the the old saying goes, um, and there are just some fundamental physics, obviously, that are involved in trumpet playing. But so much of it uh, is based on our individual concepts and how we think and and what we may need based on our physiology. So it's the psychology and the physiology of it. But um, I know that there are so many players that have benefited from. Uh, when they when they're having difficulties in their playing, they benefit from learning from someone who's overcome difficulties themselves. So, uh, you know, doing the Maggio system is great. You know, for people who've had uh, those kind of chop injuries, um, you know, like like Bobby Shoes, another great uh, example of somebody who just had to kind of figure it out to make things work and how to work around uh, limitations. Uh, and it's it's one of those things where you know it. It's not the blind pedagogy, it's understanding where where that method come came from, what's the, what's the focus of that method, and then how can I apply it in my situation to help me to the best of my ability. So
0: exactly. That's that's a great way of putting it. And that that's actually, you know, when I'm teaching it to to, to students, it, it, I might teach it in different ways depending on the player and and, and the way that they, you know. <laughs> We've all got different mouths. We've all got different teeth formation. You know, there there are, there are things which are pretty similar in lots of different techniques. But actually, um, using a book like that, and you can apply it to different people for their own individual, um, and and hope hope that they they have their eureka moment because that's what it's about. And then once you've had that moment, it's about then trying to revisit it. And you know, if somebody say I'm teaching somebody and and they do. One of those exercises, and you know they're just doing an arpeggio, maybe, or a chromatic thing, just going up to say, you know, high C, and they all of a sudden you see them, they'll play it, and then they they might take the trumpet down, they smile, and then they're ready to start the next exercise. Now I always go, no, don't start the next one, let that feeling sink in, because what we're trying to recreate when people warm up. Why do they warm up? Well, okay, yeah, we do need to warm our bodies up with you know, breathing and our muscles and what have you. But the most important thing is to actually try and get And why we warm up is to try and get that feeling where, oh, yeah, we're in a good place. It feels good. It feels right. And normally, and it feels good. It sounds good.
2: Yeah,
1: I love it. I love it. Well, speaking of, of uh practice and methods, uh, we've got a couple uh, uh standard segments we got to get through before I can uh call it a day with you. Uh but the first one is brought to us by uh my good friend Brian Davis of Airflow. Oh, Beach. Brian, yeah. I know Brian. And uh this is called Go Practice. And Go Practice is just about that. So as as we were talking about, uh, you know, how you applied the Maggio method to your playing, um, and there are like I said, there's there there are consistent things uh, throughout pretty much every methodology, whether it be Stamp or Caruso or anything like that. Um, but when when you're approaching practice, when you're when you're approaching it uh, either for yourself or or for your students, um, and you've already talked about like you know doing the segmented practice, which I'm 100 with on that. um, What are some of the other key components that you feel that as a trumpet player, particularly those for those of us who don't have the opportunity to spend four, six, eight hours a day practicing because we have other things we have to do in our lives, what are are some of the ways that that we can approach our practice so that we can have the most uh, effective and efficient uh, playing experience?
0: Okay. I would always say that every note we play starts with a breath in and i've seen so many people who you say play me middle g and they just go straight and play the g they don't even really take a breath in at all and i'm not talking about taking a massive breath in. i'm just talking about taking a nice relaxed breath in and you know some people might say that that the air is overrated for high note playing well maybe it is but for sound and for actually supporting the chops and supporting the notes that we play and to get get that nice core sound we need to have a nice free release of air and and not getting all kind of tensed up before we before we play so when i when i'm practicing for myself say like i was going to start doing some practice now i would play with an i'd just get the breathing going first i'd just practice going and actually I do I do a silent breath in. So and the idea behind this is that, you know, the throat is so majorly important on on on, on our plane for lots of reasons because we all have a tendency, the natural valsalvic thing of of the throat closing up as especially as we go high, as we as we compress our chops together, which naturally happens as we go higher. We don't really want to compress the chops together too much, because then the aperture disappears, and the throat closes. So if we practice breathing in silently
2: and then, and then,
0: breathe out in the same way, so we can do that, but keep it as one cycle, so we don't breathe in and then blow out, we breathe in. It's so easy to like stack up with air and then release it. And that's, you know, that's not a kind of relaxed way of playing. And, and that, that goes for like, you know, too, maybe too much attack, too hard a note. You know, when we play a practice, we should always be trying to be in a state where, we, A, we're relaxed and we're, com- we're completely thinking about the sound at the beginning. So I'll play a middle G. And if the middle G doesn't sound too good, I'll then maybe do some bends on that. So I might bend down to F sharp or F natural and, you know, go down, uh, maybe go down to an E flat, go, go all the way down, but step by step, half steps, um, and then come back up to the G. So it's like I'm getting my, I'm getting a cloth out and I'm polishing the G up. I'm getting rid of any nasty edges. And then once I've done that, then I'll probably move on to, to doing something like um, some long notes, some flow exercises again to get this breathing going. My, my my biggest thing really is to get that free resonant air column that's that's able to then help us with the sound. And then ultimately with the aid of compression, um, of you know, compression from all sorts of places. Obviously, you know, we can talk about breathing and how we compress air for, for ages, but obviously there's compression within the rib cage, the, the diaphragm and uh, the mouth and 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 inside the mouth, sorry, knocking the mic, um, inside the mouth and and also the corners. Corners are, are very, very important. Um, and in recent times I've actually been um, using with 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 success really um larry merigliano's cts and i found that very useful in 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 really helping with compression so um especially he's got this aperture tool i don't know you've seen that and that's that's really fabulous for uh because you're keeping the aperture there and 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 just low comp, low, com, uh, low amounts of actual pressure on, on that gauge you know we're not trying to go for a guinness guinness will record with this um but just that i find that's brilliant especially if there's no time to get to the horn or if you you can do it while you're watching the tv you know it's it's a great way of, of shaping up and, and you know it's been a it's been a successful larry and i'm 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 really pleased about that he's he's a he's a great great guy
1: yeah yeah i'm i'm a, a big fan of larry's cts i i have three of them so. <laughs> yeah I have one in my bedroom. I have one in my car and I have one at my desk. So, Fantastic. Yeah, it, it's been very helpful. So that's great. All right, well, that, those are great tips. All right, well, we're gonna move on to our next segment. And our next segment is uh, called Sound Off and it's brought to us by Michael Barkley of Barkley Microphones. And uh, again, we talked about this. This seems to be a theme. Here we're talking about sound and and getting uh, getting at beautiful sound. So. Uh, you know, you've already mentioned about listening, you, and we talked about the breath. Um, are there any other uh, components uh, that you think that that people need to think about uh, or be aware of when they're working at, uh, and developing their own unique sound?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've I listen to a lot of singers, so when I mean, back years ago. Um, somebody I haven't mentioned that I worked very closely with great singer but a classical singer is the amazing uh, uh, incredible uh, late Jesse Norman um, the opera singer who I, I worked with closely for about 10 years and some things we actually did just as a duo so I always used to try and work out what she was doing and we talked about it sometimes to do again to do with the air and but mainly about sound and about the way which we shape our oral cavity to sing and i do get people to sing a lot and some other people say, oh i can't sing i can't sing got but you know i'm not a great singer but i will sing and when you do that especially if you do it with lyrics as well. Okay, sometimes I'll sing just, you know, da ba da whatever it is I'm playing. But sometimes pick a, pick a standard and, and, and sing it with the lyrics because then that gives you the whole concept of how that melody is shaped because the lyrics give it to you straight away. So I would always say, you know, have a, have a look at the lyrics, have a listen to the lyrics and listen to some singers think about an opera singer like Jesse Norman but then think about you know Ella Fitzgerald or whoever you 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 know you'll go to kind of female singers obviously Sonata and all, all the singers but how the phrasing is and and use that in your practice and to get the sound that will help um the sound I was talking about within the mouth that's something that we can get used to and, I, and I, I get people to to uh it, some people might think it's whistling but i would think like you know to go um i don't know
2: <laughs> now it
0: sounds like i'm whistling but actually that's my concept of my airstream when i'm playing the trumpet because if the air is at the correct speed if I go, I've got all the sounds within changing the shape in my mouth with the air, which is just in my mouth, I've got all the pitches, we've got the complete harmonic series within our oral cavities. So it's using the tongue to separate those, letting the air whiz round that and, and get that, that resonance on the sound because it comes one with the vibrations of the lip and there we get the tone. We get the we get that sound. So those are the concepts that, that I have, and I try and encourage people to to think about and see where 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 they where they are with that. Some people might struggle with with having that thought. You know, thinking like a singer would do: head voice, chest voice, head voice. But it's nearly always head voice with with a trumpet. I think because we're normally playing in that kind of tessitura.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I the first time I ever heard anyone say that uh, about feeling like a break between the chest voice and the head voice. Uh, I was I was talking to Wayne Bergeron, and right. we were we were just we were talking. Uh, this was after he uh, had his his last big health issue, and he said, "Yeah, I felt like where my break was to my head voice." had shifted and i'm like what what are you talking about and he explained i'm like oh that makes sense and yeah. I, I never really thought about it in that perspective and then when i started to think about it, it it helped me to connect a portion of my register that that usually was kind of squirrely and it's like oh now suddenly it's starting to lock in a little bit better
0: yeah um, but it's, it's a bit like the other thing is uh um is y- like a yodel Oh uh, uh, uh. That's, that's a similar kind of obviously that's a constriction in the throat but it's a similar kind of thing and it's like connecting those two things if you can do it seamlessly which of course i think wayne manages to do it pretty seamlessly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Um, all right. Well, great. Now let's let's move on to uh, our next segment. And uh, this next segment is called "Geared Up," and "Geared Up" is brought to us by Venture Mouthpieces, Venture, where technology, design, and craftsmanship intersect. Use the code Trumpet twenty one to get ten percent off your order. This is about gear, and I think this is a, this is a good uh, again. We kind of we can kind of segue right into as we've been talking about uh, you know sound and sound production and things like that. And you mentioned earlier about. Uh, when you were in Anaheim uh, for your, you know, for the the release of of uh, your model uh, trumpet, um, being involved in that kind of a process where you're where you're uh, helping to design or to to create a specific kind of horn, uh, a lot of that's driven by, uh, you know, obviously the ease of playing, but also the sound and the response. So, when you were going through that process, uh, what was it that you were looking to create with that horn? and how how did that process help you to then better educate other people on how to look at equipment and to find equipment that could be kind of tailored to their their specific playing needs?
0: um well, for about twenty years prior to me starting work on this trumpet, maybe a bit longer i'd I'd played Smith Watkins trumpets, and it was actually um when I began working closely with Derek work as, a, as a, you know, playing, um, Derek said, oh, I've got to spare one of my trumpets in here. Um, do you want to have a go with it? Look, play it next to me. So I played this trumpet, and the next day I went up to... Richard Smith then lived in North London. I went up to his house, and um, I tried some trumpets out and ended up buying one, and and 20 years later, I was still playing on one of these trumpets, and then, you know, Derek passed away, what uh, was it, 2013. And um, I, I just said to Richard, you know, what, what What's what are you going to do with the trumpet? So have you got any ideas for moving forwards with, with trumpet design? Because Richard had been a designer for Boozy and Hawks back in the day. And the first model that Derek designed with him was the Boozy Studio model, which was a great trumpet, actually. It's just before my time, really. But um, that was a great trumpet. So... Richard also was the the boozy sovereign a cornet designer, which was one of the you know best cornets that's ever been made here in the UK, certainly. Um, and so I said to Richard, "What well, you know, he's now moved up to to Yorkshire and he lives on a farm and he's got this cow shed where he makes trumpets." I said, "You know what what what's the way forward now?" And he said, "Well, um, do you fancy doing some work with me?" And prior to that, Derek and I had done all sorts of tests, like proving that, you know, there's a reflected wave, which makes the lips vibrate and all that kind of stuff. I could talk for hours on all, all of that. But I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. And so what I did was, basically, my starting point was the old Smith Watkins horn, which, like I said, I played on for a long time, and I knew inside out. And there were certain little things about the design that I thought, well, if that was mine, I'd maybe do this with it. And one of the things was that I wanted something that was a bit heavier uh in the in the way of the bell, because the bell was a great bell, but it 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 was that I used, but it was a bit too in certain instances, it was a bit too brittle, maybe not dark enough sound. So um we talked about bells and and then we got on to. We got onto um, uh, uh, the actual uh, bore size, and I would played on like a four six four bore for years. But in the end, we we went down to a four sixty. I think this is part of you know getting to the top of that arc and starting to come back. As you get older, maybe you want something to help a bit more. But I always thought, you know, my old bark that I played on was a four five nine bore. What 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 be wrong with going back to that kind of size? So. Um, and then, so we, we decided on the bore size and valves and then the bell, obviously I remember Derek talking about this years ago. And he said about when you get a horn, you, you know, depending on what you put in it at that end, it's got a balance up at the other. So if you've got a really small mouthpiece, then you should have a big bell. And I, that was always in the back of my mind. So we experimented with the balance between mouthpiece and bell to start off with bearing in mind that obviously the horn was smaller so I had a slightly smaller bell but thicker metal and then the lead pipe there's this one here behind me the lead pipes are interchangeable but I, I don't actually change lead pipes at all I use one lead pipe the whole time but I liked this design because of this screw in here which kind of where the mouthpiece goes into the receiver It's very, very solid because of that clamp on the lead pipe. And also there's a bit of extra weight there as well. And then where the lead pipe ends and the tuning slide begins inside the outer lead pipe, you've got another gap. So that creates a bit of resistance as well. So we played around with all these things, ended up getting a bigger lead pipe than I played on before, again, to balance up with the bell, uh, because the bell was smaller. So I thought, right, I'll have a bigger lead pipe. And once we got that balance right, I said that's it. Um, and they 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 come standard silver plate, but um, as you can see, this one behind me, I've got I've got three or four that they're all gold plated, just because for me the sound's a bit warmer with the gold plate. Um, and I'm, I mean I'm bound to say this, but it's a really fant- fantastic all-round trumpet and. You Know there's one guy that makes these, like I said, in a cow shed in Yorkshire, England. And um, I think we've we've sold something like in the region of you know four or five hundred of them. So it's not bad. Um, yeah. and I, I I always say, you know, when people have said to me, Oh, you make a nice sound on that. I say, Well, this will see me out the business, this trumpet. <laughs> I've I've never been one for for changing around using lots of different instruments and, um, and mouthpiece wise, um, they're my own mouthpieces as well, uh, which are Smith Watkins mouthpieces. And I've got three in the range. One is a studio, which is kind of medium sized mouthpiece, not too shallow because I came from a big mouthpiece background. Uh, It's about like a Bark three diameter, uh, maybe a tiny bit shallower than than a 3C. So that probably equivalent of a um they go the letters go so a d is a bit shallower than a c isn't it on a bark i think um and you can see that i've never been a mouthpiece freak either um but uh yeah i play on that for general every day and then i've got um, a lead mouthpiece which is the same depth but a tiny bit narrower but that's got a really big bat bore so that when I'm compressing a bit more the air can still get through so the throat doesn't close up seems to work for me Um, and then there's a classical one as well which is kind of like a one and a quarter c but um and they have these screw-on boosters you can see one on here Uh, you can change different weights because I used to play with one of those dennis wick boosters you know you slide on and used to stuff it with with some plasticine or something, you know, inside. But when we designed those, I said, how about having a thread so it screws on? And then I think Shaggle brought out James Morrison's mouthpiece and it had already got one of these screw on things. They beat us to it. <laughs>
1: Great ideas, you know? Yeah. Well, that, that's good. I mean, um, I definitely like the, the idea of of trying to find that balance um, and I, I, I don't think enough people think about that of ba- of trying to find the right balance in the equipment, that if, you, if you're going to go small on one end, you should probably go bigger on the other end just to...
0: Yeah, just a balance. Yeah, balance it out. I remember when, actually, when Derek was um, kind of in the height of his career, he he had a really enormous bell on, the, on his, it's what's called a cue bell on the on the um smith watkins that he played and the mouthpiece was a Ten 10s so there you are there's there's the that's that's why he had a massive bell mm-hmm. but you listen to his sound and you wouldn't think actually he's playing on a really shallow mouthpiece but as he got older he went on to bigger mouthpieces you know at one point he was playing a, a bark 7c or 3c or whatever you know it's it, it's it's for whatever you're doing i suppose it changes yeah. I remember at one point that um, when we were starting to do the mouthpieces, I suggested that it'd be good to, for De- to have a Derek Watkins mouthpiece model. Um, and Derek gave me his 10S that he played on uh, nearly everything on. Um, there was no plating left on it. It was just bare brass. <laughs> and I put it in my pocket and I carried it up to Richard's at, um, in York. and. I must admit, I did think about should I just keep it? <laughs> but um no. So that was that was that and uh, that's what he played on.
2: Yeah.
0: But equipments, I mean, for everyone, it's it's it is a it is a journey of discovery. And thankfully there are people who've brought the bought these trumpets and, and and really like them. So that that's nice. I mean it was made. For me to play, but if other people like it as well, that's fantastic.
1: That's awesome. All right, great. We have one final segment to get through. Uh, this is one of my favorites. Uh, this one is called the Robinsons Remedy Rapid Fire Round. Uh, it's brought to us by Robinsons Remedies, Rapid Relief for your sore and tired chops. Uh, it's just a series of questions that kind of bounce all over the place. Um, so, Mike, are you ready to give this a shot? Yeah, I'll go for go. All right, here we go. First question: Who's the biggest influence on your life that is not a trumpet player? My dad. What's your favorite book?
0: Um, No Minor Chords, Andrzej Previn.
2: What's the worst movie you've seen? Um, Shrek. Okay. Um, If you weren't a trumpet player,
1: what would you want to be?
0: Um, To to work uh, in nature. uh, Maybe as an agriculturist or something like that.
1: Okay. What's
2: your favorite drink? Beer.
1: All right. You uh, could have a dinner party, and at the dinner party, you could invite any three living people, any three people in the world. Who would you want to have there?
2: Um, Wayne Bergeron. Um King Charles. And
0: Simon Rattle.
2: That's an interesting
1: mix there. <laughs> all right, uh, you've got three additional chairs at your dinner table, and these are for any three people in history, any three people that are no longer with us.
0: Yuan Razy has to be top of the list. Um,
2: Manny Klein,
0: funny, it's all trumpet players, isn't it? And Kenny Baker.
2: Oh,
1: oh man. Good lineup. Good lineup. All right. Lacquer, plated or
2: raw? Plated. All right. What is your favorite quote? I didn't
0: get where I am today playing the way I do today. <laughs> that's from that's from an old trumpet player, British trumpet player called Derek Healy, and he was one of the funniest men ever. Right. That could be taken one of two ways. I'm not yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. And, and he also said, um, uh, the older I get, the better I was.
1: <laughs> I do like that one.
2: All right. Uh, what's your greatest fear?
0: Um, teeth falling out.
1: Uh, you could be granted one superpower. What would it be? Fly. What aspect of trumpet playing do you think is the most overrated?
2: High notes. And what aspect do you think is the most underrated? Sound. All right. Uh, You can go back
1: in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music, what would it be?
0: Learn to play jazz.
2: And uh, while you're back there, you'll give yourself one piece of advice about life. Be nice to people. And final question for you, Mike. What do you want your legacy to be?
0: Um, that was a good guy that always played
2: the best he could in any situation and that people enjoyed it. All right, well
1: great legacy to have and uh yeah <laughs> you know, you're, you are uh you are fulfilling it very well my friend so oh thank you i appreciate you uh taking time out of uh your i guess it's your evening at this point i keep forgetting. evening yeah yeah uh and uh you know it, it's been great talking and I, I would love to get you back on the show at some point to uh to talk about some other things including the physics of uh of playing uh that's always a, a great topic and uh um, you know, there, there, you have so many uh, great insights, and and uh, I would just love to to pick your brain a little bit more at some point.
0: I'd love to, Josie. You know, it's been it's been really nice to to come and do this, and you can tell that I always like a good hang and a good chat.
1: Oh, absolutely. And yeah, uh, you know, I I keep uh, I keep threatening Tom Walsh uh, that I'm gonna I'm gonna show up in London one of these days, and and uh, I was supposed to. Get a hang together with him and Louie and and Ryan Quigley and and some of the other chaps there, and uh, we'll have to we'll have to get you in on the mix as well. And uh, sure, love to go yeah. down to the go down to the pub and 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 have a have a few pints. That's right. I, I'm all about that. So uh, we'll 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 have a live London
0: hang. That'd at, be great. Yeah, let let me know when if that's happening. All right, we'll make it happen. All yeah. right.
1: So thank you very much for taking a uh, time to join us for this episode of the Hang. Make sure you like and subscribe, share this with your friends. Uh, if you have a idea for a future guest or a topic, please hit me up and uh, make sure that you check out the links uh, in the show notes uh, because uh, we'll, we'll give you some information about how you can uh, get uh, into the mix with Mike and his project. And yeah, if you want to help support it, support live music, folks. That's what it's all about. So until next time, folks piece of slide grease. We're out. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signor, And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group.